It lives 50 feet beneath the streets. It's 36 feet long. It weighs over 2,000 pounds. And it's about to break out. We're looking at the one who saw it. And it was big. You said it was dark. Now, perhaps you were mistaken. Keep coming. At first, no one believed it. Now, no one will forget it. Alligator. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, uh, we'll be speaking again with Mr. Lee Gambin. Lee is a famed historian, I should say, film historian, <laughs> famed film historian, who's contributed many wonderful commentaries on some of the boutique label releases of classic films in the last several years. He's really turned out some, some great work for, for many, many titles. Uh, upcoming is Jenny. That's one of his most recent titles, a film that starred Alan Alda from 1970. He's also written many, many interesting books. Uh, among them, he did a complete recounting of the making of The Howling and Cujo and two wonderful books that I would highly recommend. And on this special episode, we're going to talk about the film Alligator, for which he pinned a very, very good piece for Fangoria magazine some years back, and he was able to talk to most of the people involved in the film. And we're going to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Alligator on this special episode of Movie Geeks United, so it's a pleasure to welcome you again to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. And yeah, it's a great um, honor to talk about Alligator. What a, what a fun, smart film it is. It uh, still holds up today. Unfortunately, it's out of print currently on DVD in America, and uh, there are some European versions out there, I think, that you can get, but it's kind of hard to find. I think Lionsgate controls the rights to it at this point, and, and that's, that's a real travesty that it hasn't had a proper Blu-ray release, much less the fact that it's out of print on DVD. But uh, like I said, we don't want to forget it. And that's why I wanted to get you on here, because you're such a... You're so knowledgeable about the subject. So tell me a little bit about the origins of the film, how it came to be, and, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, so, I mean, the film was uh, written by John Sayles. So John Sayles is this master screenwriter who basically um, always um, injects his screenplays with really acute social commentary um, and, you know, really plays with uh, genre tropes and sort of makes them political sort of... Uh, uh, politically inclined or socially aware um, scripts. So basically he plays the monster movie trope here and brings it to a kind of much more um, in-depth kind of um, satirical look um, at a situation at hand where he basically comments on how people cope with a, a, you know, a, a dire situation at hand. So the film's released in 1980, um, directed by Lewis Teague, who you know becomes someone that pick, uh, people pick up on uh, from this film because they sort of they knew his work from Corman days, but Alligator really sort of launch pads his career and he would go on to do Cujo um, because Stephen King himself really enjoyed Alligator. Um, it's one of his films he writes about 
in um, Dance Macabre, I think. But the the beauty of Alligator for me is the script, I think, and everything else around it. But I, I feel like John Sale's writing is it just hits the nail on the head. Before Alligator, he had written um, the script for Piranha, um, for Joe Dante, and that also has a lot of social, you know, biting commentary as well. Uh, most notably, the way the media sort of presented something like the Vietnam War, because he sort of uh, satirizes that in Piranha, the way the media sort of uh, talks about this, you know, this insane uh, massacre that happens with the Piranha. Um, that are all uh, basically used as a military device. They're, you know, the U.S. government has trained these uh, using piranha, you know, to tackle op- uh, opponents over across the, uh, the, uh, the globe. Um, so it's really clever to sort of comment on U.S. government influence there. And then in Alligator, you have this idea of when do people actually react to a disaster, a natural disaster or an unnatural disaster. And what happens is, as you see the alligator actually progressively getting worse and bigger and also nastier, as it starts to attack and kill people in the ghetto firstly, and then into the working classes, then the middle class, then finally this sort of wealthy um, uh, wedding, uh, which you know is a great sequence at the end. So it's basically this whole progression of how disaster strikes and how it's a, a class-based film. And that's when people sort of take notice. But then, of course, you have the wonderful Robert Forster playing a character who gets it from the get-go. And he's obviously joined forces with Robin Riker's character. And I'll talk about that if you want, the whole arc, the archetypes of the characters that are used in there, um, performances, uh, all that sort of stuff as we go through this um, chat. But I just think that, yeah, Alligator, the, the, the genesis of Alligator is basically playing with the idea of a monster movie trope uh, using and utilizing ecological horror stuff as well as like you know um, throwback to sort of you know uh, atomic age monsters of the 50s because you know it's a mutagen that basically causes this creature to grow huge in size but then infusing it and injecting it with this really cool social commentary and it's interesting that it comes out just at the cusp of Ronald Reagan's administration like him coming into power and then also um, while grids was happening and while, and then so that, that developing into the AIDS crisis uh, where basically at this disaster this horrible you know uh, plague was kind of ignored for a long time until people started to realize oh hang on you know not just certain social groups are getting this disease so the alligator is kind of like a foreshadowing of it. it's a really clever um really really um insightful piece um that people kind of probably just sort of see as a fun monster movie and it is it's absolutely that but it's got such a really biting awareness and that's all john sales john sales is just a smart dude and when he wrote the howling he sort of plays on the tropes of you know not trusting um institutions and uh playing on the whole role of the touch me therapy fads it was sort of a hangover of this sort of uh post hippie sort of phase where people are sort of doing you know me therapy sort of stuff and and then also talking about bestial energy in the human condition so you know denying the beast and making that the howling is highly political um you know the 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 end sequence of the werewolves are sort of talking amongst themselves and how they should sort of deal with the outside world and alligator does that as well alligator plays with um, issues of mental illness about opportunism about um, depression and loneliness it's all in there and it's really beautifully um, weaved together and lewis t does a magnificent job at executing um, the film plus it looks gorgeous and yeah it is a shame you opened with the whole idea about the 
film uh, not getting a Blu-ray. Hopefully it will eventually. I, I don't want to go into the detailings there. I've got a little bit of insight into what's going on there, but I don't need to talk about that. But basically it will, I think, hopefully eventually get it. What I want to see surface, of the, which I have never seen or been privy to seeing, uh, are the deleted scenes, um, which there are quite a couple of them. There's like maybe, I don't know, four or five um, that are sort of tangible, uh, meaty scenes. They might be like, you know, one minute or three minutes or whatever, but still, for big fans like us, it would be great to see them. Um, and also, I think there's a rumour that, you know, the Sue Lyon character, the reporter, has a bit more to do. Um, uh, but yeah, and we lost her. We lost her and Robert Forster just in the same year, I believe. So that's that's tragic um, in the world of Alligator. But yeah, um, it was really beautiful to talk to people from the film, like Robert, who was just divine, and we kept in touch for since the interview, and Robin Riker, who I keep in touch with. And I think it's interesting, I'll, I'll stop you right quick, uh, because yeah. I have seen the television version of Alligator, which is, uh, does include the, the network television version, which ran on ABC in the early 80s. That was my first experience with the film, actually. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that uh, when I finally did see it uncut on cable television in the mid-80s, um, several years after its television debut, I noticed there, there were a few scenes that were missing when I saw the theatrical cut, and I, and I knew right then and there there was something going on that was that was um, there was quite a, a few noticeable differences. Very probably uh, some other stuff that that you're referring to that wasn't in the television version. But I th do distinctly remember that uh, there were several places in the film where I thought, oh, oh yeah, what, what about that scene? And it, it wasn't there. Mm. So that uh, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, so similar to you as a kid, that's the first time I saw it was on Channel 7 and obsessed with it, especially the opening. I feel like a lot of opening, when, I was a kid, when you were a child, you probably remember certain sequences more than others. And I distinctly remember the opening so well, like especially the dad flushing the baby gator down the toilet. That's somehow stuck with me. <laughs> and then um, rented it on video all the time. <laughs> So it was one of those staple VHS rentals all the time, but definitely saw it on Channel 7, which would have been, it's kind of the counterpart to your ABC network, I guess, there in the States. Um, and yeah, it was a favourite, absolutely, straight away, because it's just such a fun, cool film. And then as I got older, obviously, you know, you notice all the stuff in there, the sly sense of humour, you know, the great... <laughs> and, and then also, like, as you become, you know, I guess... Uh, a scholar of ecological horror you pick up on the wonderful tropes that are in there and the character tropes and the and the plot devices and just then also loving all the character actors in there my god like henry silver and sydney lassick um you know all these awesome people are in there and it's just it's a great watch yeah it, it really really is and like you said the humor is is very sly uh i know a lot of it went over my head i guess i was probably 11 or 12 when I saw it the first time, and I'm thinking it was probably 81, 82 when it ran on cable television, I mean, uh, uh, network television. Mm -hmm. It was 85, I know for a fact, that I finally did see the uncut version for the first time. So, yeah, as, as I, it's, it's one of those movies that, as I have gotten older, and the film has gotten older, we've kind of grown older together, and I've, uh, <laughs> like a great bottle of wine that ages so well, yeah. so does Alligator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, I know Louis Teague had just previously, the year before, directed The Lady in Red, which I'm also a fan of. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, you know, it's, it's got a great cast, too. Uh, Robert Conrad, of course, among them, whom we just recently lost, sadly, and Pamela Sue, Sue Martin, whom I, I had the pleasure to spend some time with at a 
at a, at a film convention several years ago. So mm-hmm. um, she's she's a uh, that's uh, I think she's terrific in that as well. Uh, but yeah, I was going to get you to talk about you know his uh, coming on to the project and some of the challenges he faced. I know their budget was limited, but they did so well on such a limited budget uh, with, with what they were able to achieve. And they, they got some pretty high caliber actors uh, too. With, with yeah, um, one of the one of the, of the mm, exactly uh, one of the big uh, features of the film are, is the special effects. I think they're really beautiful, mm. beautifully created, and that's all miniature works mostly. So it's all like reconstructing, you know, a little Chicago scenario, you know, the back alleyways and streets, so you can have this live alligator actually stroll around and you know do its thing. Um, and then also the beautiful puppet design, the creation. So Robert Short was one of the um, designers on it, and I got to interview him um, about his work on it. And he worked on uh, the puppeteering as well as the actual miniature constructions. And it's really fascinating to sort of see where he came from. Basically, it was all to do with um, base scale and keeping it to scale to the croc, to the alligator, but then also developing the, the scope of the miniatures to get... Uh, I guess smaller in sky size as the as the alligator stays the same body type, of course. Um, so, but just to imply that the gator's growing at a you know rapid state. Um, so it's you know and and there's nice gore in the film. I love that sequence of the kid off the um, the diving board and also that that wonderful ending the um, at the wedding you know with the maid getting slaughtered and all that sort of stuff and the guy the, the you know the rich tycoon being bashed against the limousine all that yeah. stuff's really fun and it doesn't shy away from being gruesome um so it does have that kind of gore aspect that was you know flourishing come the 80s but then it has that really sort of self-referential uh wink at the audience um sensibility that was happening also at the same time in the early 80s and you have to remember this is a film that's like you know an animal horror movie um at the at the real height really of the slasher boom so it's kind of um you know risky to do these kind of animal movies and at that period interestingly enough a lot of eco horror movies were sort of being uh, marketed as not exactly that so you had a lot of films with alternate titles different poster designs um so it doesn't sort of give away the fact that it's about an animal but with alligator it's called alligator <laughs> and you know the, the the poster has that beautiful image of the sewer um scope with the gator sort of peering through so it's not hiding from anything um and then you had like there's a really cool advert i'm forgetting where it comes from but it's like this really nice, if you look it up you'll find it a really cool poster design where it's a happy looking disney-like alligator so it looks like he's dancing and it's kind of like um playing on the fact that this film's also fun it's a really weird poster but it's really cool um and i remember seeing that for the first time later as a as a young adult going oh my god that's a, what a weird way to promote this film um, but yeah, so it's interesting that Alligator, <laughs> Alligator was a warts and all, you know, uh, the studio going, nah, this is just a straight up croc- uh, killer gator film, let's advertise it as that. Whereas films like The Pack um, from 1977, one of my favourites, um, the Robert Klaus mm-hmm. film, yes. that's called, the, yeah, the alternate title was The Long Dark Night, as you'd know, and the poster art mm-hmm. was different. Then you had Nightwing, which was the killer bat movie from 79, and that had two mm-hmm. poster designs, one that sort of was really pulpy it's hanging right above me actually as i speak in my lounge room <laughs> and then the other one was the 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 the, cav- the caves the big sort of you know so it looked like it wasn't anything about bats um so the whole idea of these movies sort of hiding the fact that they're about animal attack movies because at that period you know the stalk and slash dude with the knife hacking people to death was the big thing that was popular um 
And, you know, you see that with campaign posters for other monster movies that aren't eco-horror films, like The Howling, you know. Joe Dante didn't want to scream werewolf when he was sort of pushing the campaign stuff. But Alligator is, you know, what it is. And that's 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 pretty brave, um, especially when you consider what jo- uh, Lewis Teague wanted to do with the design for Cujo later. Um, for those of people who knew the book, obviously it's about a rabid St. Bernard, but the poster art design... Um, by um, Tannenbaum, who did the original designs for Jaws before the um, final poster, he wanted the whole thing really subtle, and it was you know the the picket fence with the bloodstained Cujo written on it, so it looked like you know oh yeah this is about you know domestic unrest somehow or something's happening, but there's no I there's no inkling of the dog right, so the so it's interesting to see from Lewis Teague's perspective there with the design for the campaign going from alligator which was very very overt. To something playing subtly, um, especially when Cujo was already, you know, a relatively successful novel. But yeah, so that's really interesting. So Alligator is like a really proud <laughs> killer animal movie um, in its campaigns. But yeah, I think it's uh, it, look. There's so much to talk about with it as far as what it what it's about and the subliminal stuff in there, um, uh, how it's so heavily. Um, uh, critical on, say, commerce, that really cool sequence where all the chaos is happening and then there's opportunistic people walking around <laughs> selling little alligator toys. <laughs> so all that stuff's really cool. It's really I love all that stuff. It's, and that's all John Sayles, you know, that's all he's writing. But the, stu- the cast, I'll talk about them if you want. So uh, Robin, sure, Robin Riker... Robin Reich is amazing. So she would go on to do a really undervalued show that was on Showtime, um, which, you know, people go on about Will and Grace being one of the first sort of gay-centric uh, sitcoms. But this, this was definitely one of the first. And it was called Brothers. And it was about um, three guys, three brothers, um, working class sort of neighbourhood. They ran a bar, a sports bar. And the youngest brother was gay. In the first episode, he comes out as gay. And the other two brothers, one being kind of really kind of you know, truck driver type, you know, macho dude, and the other one being the sportso sort of guy, have to sort of come to terms with it, I guess. And Robin Riker plays the sort of sexy, sassy, single um, waitress, you know, um, very similar kind of to like a, a Elaine Nardo from Taxi, that kind of really cool, savvy, sassy mm-hmm. broad. And she does it so well. So I love watching her career sort of go from all those different things. And she's such a brilliant writer as well, Robin Riker, and a sweetheart and so insanely intelligent and she had lots of she only had good things to say about alligator she thought it was just a superb script um she was shocked that she would play the lead she thought that sue lyon would play the lead because she knew that sue lyon was signed on um and sue lyon of course had played lolita and was you know that blonde beautiful bombshell but yeah robin was like oh okay i'm doing this and i just love her character i think she just you know so there's a trope in eco horror movies which I write about in a lot of work I've done, called the which I like to call the sympathetic specialist, and they are women in these eco horror movies who really understand the animal in question and have a great empathy um, towards them, and really basically get the man in question to sort of um, you know get off his ass and get stuff happening, um, and they basically are kind of uh, so connected to the natural world that they um, almost seem sided to the animal, but then have to actually ultimately side with humanity. Um, and you see them in all these films, Charlotte Rampling in Orca, Tiffany Bowling in Kingdom of the Spiders, um, Catherine Ross and They Only Shoot Their Master... master uh, sorry, They Only Kill Their Masters. Um, there's a whole bunch of these women that are in these roles, and Robin Riker's definitely one of them. So she's an herpetologist, and 
you know, she's the kid at the start who adopts the little alligator that's flushed. So I love her character and her take on her character, but then what Robin Riker adds to the performance and as well with the writing is the fact that this woman's quite complicated and a little bit stunted in her emotional growth because she still lives with her mother. Um, she's kind of, you know, not really that committed to um, dating people. and She's very obsessed with the animal king. It's really cool. It's like a really cool character. I love her because in a sense, as well as the men in these films being detached from the world, so are these women because they're so um, into their, um, their studies or their career, which is awesome, but they also seem to have a distancing to the rest of the, to humanity. So that's why they kind of marry up really well with these guys who I like to call the sort of leftover cowboy types or the haunted loner types who are really um, on their rogue dudes. Like if you think of, once again, William Shatner in Kingdom of the Spiders or Richard Harris in Orca, um, uh, Bradford Dillman in uh, Piranha, they're kind of like, you know, detached, uh, haunted guys who generally, sometimes are on the booze or just sort of, you know, um, haunted by something. And in Alligator's case, it's the same thing with Robert Forster's character where he's haunted by the death of an ex-partner, ex-cop partner. And then it, ha- it pops up again with Perry Lang's character, the young guy. But I love Forster. He, once again, so yeah, Robin Riker, absolute brilliant. I love her performance. Beautiful actress. She had great stories. And also um, Robert Forster, my God. he The first time we talked, uh, he talked about... Um, pretty much a lot of stuff, not just Alligator. He was talking about John Huston, working with John Huston, and he did like this amazing uh, impression of John Huston, which was hilarious. Um, and he talked about uh, he talked about other films. We talked about Vigilante, um, uh, 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 what, The Stalking Moon. So a lot of these films oh, that he... Yeah. yeah, all this stuff that he worked on, Reflections in a Golden Eye, of course. Just brilliant, brilliant guy. And it was really sad when he passed because he was someone that stayed in touch up until, yeah, it was happening. I was trying to get uh, organised stuff for Cat's Eye, the Cat's Eye release. And when the new Twin Peaks thing came out, I reached out to him to see if he um, could put me in touch with Candy Clark. And so that was happening. Mm-hmm. And he was just so helpful and really lovely. And I was like watching Twin Peaks as it was going. And I'm like, every time you're on it, I go, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> because I just wanted classic Twin Peaks and it was just it just did my head in just personally quietly I did quietly I'm on a friggin podcast but I just didn't really <laughs> I didn't really love the new season uh, much to the you know the disdain of my David Lynch devotee friends but I just couldn't deal with I just didn't connect so I remember saying to Robert um, when you're on it's like you know normalcy has settled and it's like thank fuck because now you get a sense of you know I don't know uh, narrative <laughs> but anyway um but i i'm just yeah i don't know um so as i love david lynch as well don't get me wrong but i just could not connect to that show i actually went back and watched the original series and was like wow this is beautiful anyway but robert was so i don't know just an amazing performer a great you know medium cool and all these films and just a really beautiful um performance style a real man's man but then had that sort of um the sensitivity in there as well that kind of great period of men of the 70s and early 80s like Chris Christopherson's and Jeff Bridges and all those guys that were really masculine but also had this real kind of I don't know paternal nurturing sensibility to them as well in their performances um I really I think I I always uh, as a kid uh my brain connected people um physically and performance wise and I always thought him and Frederick Forrest were similar 
because um, I remember seeing things like Alligator and The Rose, the Bette Midler film, at the same time. And I remember seeing like Frederick Forrest and Robert Forster as similar actors. They had the same kind of look and style. Um, and I remember seeing Frederick Forrest in a TV movie called Right to Kill with Justine Bateman and the kid from Sleepaway Camp, the, the one that Angela kills at the end, the boyfriend sort of kind of good kid. And it's that one based on the true story where the son kills his abusive father. And Rob, Frederick Forrest is terrifying in it. But as a kid, I always thought it was the guy from Alligator. Um, but then I was like, no, it's the guy, for, it's the guy from The Rose. Um, and Apocalypse Now, it's like, fuck. But th those two performance styles and types are very similar to me. And I think Forster um, in Alligator, there's all that great stuff about his receding hairline um, that kind of pops up all through it. And just his um, self-deprecation and, um, and his sexiness. Him and Robin Riker are so hot. Like, she's so sexy and so is he. And it's like, you know, you don't get that now. That kind of, you know... Uh, a really earthy man and woman who are just so cool, you know? Um, and also I just love that they're both so, um, they've found each other in, and they're both in sort of isolated, lonely states of being. I think it's a really beautiful, beautiful romance as well in Alligator. I think it's really cool and nicely handled and it's not overbearing and obnoxious. It's really natural. Um, and I think the, that's sort of similar in something like the script that um, Sales writes for Piranha, where it's kind of a blossoming romance. It doesn't really go anywhere between Heather Menzies and um, Bradford Dillman. But I love their connection as well, because they've kind of, they're coming into each other and sort of needing each other at a certain point in time under this crisis. And that's sort of, you know, just to sort of um, numb that loneliness. It's really, it's really cool stuff. It's really smartly written stuff that doesn't sort of pander to you know, blatant, obvious, you know, blossoming romance. So that's another underlying point in Alligator that I love, um, as well as all the carnage and all the social commentary. And then you have all the great character actors in there, um, you know, uh, Sydney Lassick. So Sydney Lassick, I had great stories given to me and shared to me by um, William Catt um, for on the set of Carrie. So Sydney Lassick plays Carrie's and Tommy Ross's school teacher, the English teacher. You know who mocks Carrie as well, but yeah. um, Sydney Lassick um, uh, really loved talking with William Cat, and William Cat shared some stuff about that. Um, and uh, I think he showed him a soft shoe, or, because William Cat was a trained dancer. He worked for Fosse. Um, he did Pippin, but I think they did like soft shoes together, which was quite cool. Offset, which is really sweet. Um, oh, yeah, uh, and Sydney Lassick, of course, you know his beautiful performance in um, Cuckoo's Nest. But just a really interesting, rich, interesting actor. And another one that kind of reminded me a little bit of James Coco. They had that same sort of raspy, um, effeminate kind of sensibility. They were very interesting men to watch. Um, but I love his performance as the, as the disgusting, <laughs> horrible pet shop owner. Um, and Henry Silva, who I feel is a victim of the editing scissors um, in the final cut. Um, and I want to remember, I wish I had the TV cut on tape or something because now that you mention it I'm like fuck what were those scenes that were cut but he's great in that as well I love Henry Silva you know Henry Silva in the Italian connection my god like that is just one of his best performances uh, and just one of those great uh, character actors always was quite scary to look at uh, uh, the Manchurian candidate he's in that and you know just a really beautiful performer and then he ends up playing influence in Dick Tracy in 1990 and he's still with us you know which is fucking incredible and wonderful um, and he um, so yeah I love his performance as the sort of assassin <laughs> you know the Quint character 
Um, but yeah, no, I really, I love this, I love Alligator so much. And I love the red herring plot, subplot with the, um, the terrorist, um, that has the, um, bomb that ends up being used at the end to destroy the gator. But there's some great set pieces in it. The opening, as I mentioned, um, the sequence with the kids party, um, that, the great, um, the death of the Perry Lang character, um, the, the, obviously the wedding scene, you know, crashing the wedding, the way that's shot from the gator's perspective and the poodles. Um, but yeah, like it's a really, it's a fun, fun film. And also that ending, which is actually quite tense where he's stuck under the, the sewer and the bomb's about to go off. It's great stuff. Really good fun. But yeah, no, I, I love it. I think it's a terrific film. Yeah, I do. I do as well. And, uh, another component I think to the film is, uh, the, the score by Greg mm. Safan. Yeah, um, which uh, I would love for them to issue that. I think that's that is a, 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 a real injustice that that hasn't been released on some sort of format somewhere along the way. Maybe maybe the master tapes are missing. I don't know, but if, uh, I would love 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 have wanted. That's always been at the top of my list uh, to have a, a a copy of the original score for alligator and i and it's interesting what he does because they use some musical cues i believe from the twilight zone the invaders episode yeah uh, wow the, the bernard herman at the beginning uh where the the alligator is being flushed down the toilet that's i think that's a cue from bernard herman's score from the the invaders the one with agnes moorhead where the um you know the the uh, you think she's being attacked by uh, some sort of creature, and it turns out to be our astronauts, and she's a giant or oh, something. That's yes. twisted at the end. But anyway, that that score by Bernard Herrmann, they used, they lifted parts of that and used it uh, because I had years later, after I had seen Alligator, I, I had never seen The Invaders, and I years later saw it and instantly recognized it. Um, so I, I think it's it's interesting what they choose to use as far as the, the musical cues, and and most of it is original music. I know by Craig Safan. Uh, but but just good stuff. I think that really is a component to the film that that also makes it uh, work so beautifully. I, I think too. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I have a one sheet of the film myself, the original U.S. one sheet, and uh, I'm quite proud of it. And uh, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm holding on to my DVD copy uh, in the hopes that one day I can give it up and. <laughs> Move yeah. To the next level. Well, that DVD, the Lionsgate, um, the Lionsgate's quite. Li- I mean, it looks beautiful. Um, there's a John Sayles yeah. um, interview and Robert Forster and Lewis Teague, I believe, are on the audio commentary. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I always hold on to DVDs. I don't do the replacement thing. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's fine. They're they're skinny. <laughs> you know, um, they That's don't true. take too much space. So it's 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 cool to keep on to these things. But I really do hope these lost scenes surface because. Um, speaking of Lewis Teague works, uh, recently there was a Stephen King film adaptation retrospective in LA at the Cinematheque, um, I think it was about two years ago possibly, and um, they screened Cat's Eye and he introduced it. And he was saying that um, uh, there was a deleted sequence at the start of the film where you see the actual origins of the cat. Um, and the cat was owned by none other than Eva Perron herself, Patty Lapone. Um, who he had worked with um, in a wonderful vigilante film called Fighting Back from 82. Um, and oh, I it, love that film. I have it, yes. Yeah, and Patty Lapone's in that. And this is like, you know, three years after 
doing Evita and winning the Tony, etc. And then she did this vigilante film and then pops up in Cat's Eye, which is in a deleted scene where she's trying to gun down the cat, I think, or the goblin or something's happening. There's a couple of stills, her with a rifle. Um, so that's that's like missing footage that we that you know would be amazing to see. So there's more stuff that Teague's got, you know, that has that really needs to surface on Blu-ray editions. You know what I mean? So just to have these great deleted sequences, um, that's why I was really excited to find out when I was doing the Cujo book about the deleted scene with the, an actor um, uh, who I interviewed who played the one of the guys who delivers um, Ed Lauder's hoist. Um, that Kailani Lee buys him, and the dog is, you know, just on the on the nearing to you know, the approaching um, as, um, effects of rabies, and he sort of barks at them, and they flip him the bird. And the director Lewis Teague thought it was too comical to add into such a straight film because, I mean, you look at the the tone of Cujo compared to the tone of um, Alligator, and remarkably different. You know, Cujo's so straight, so serious, um, whereas um, Alligator's playful. Um, and that's a good mark of a versatile director, you know. Um, but also just that, once again, the deleted scenes in Cujo that would love, I'd love to see resurface. But, you know, he's hoping they pop up somehow. But um, Alligator seems to be one that has quite a few that audiences are, you know, hanging to see. Um, so I really want to, oh, yeah. if you can find, if you can, if you've got that TV cut of it again somehow and you i don't know somehow tr send it to me i'd love to see where those bits are because that, it'd be amazing to see those cuts because if you picked it up um as a kid or you know when you saw it going oh hang on that was not in this cut and this is not you know the the tv cut that would be amazing because i remember like seeing the halloween tv cut um before the film because the t it was on television yes. in the 80s all the time and i remember the scene with you know the um Loomis in the that orange room with all the you know the heads of the board of the um, medical advisor board or whatever, and then also the scene with Laurie with the towel on her head, etc. And then you rent it and you buy it on video, etc. And then you're like, what the fuck? Where's those scenes? And that's when you kind of go, oh wow, there is you know a difference, and you kind of get used to which one you see. Salem's Lot was the same thing. I remember uh, the video. CBS video version was the condensed version, mm -hmm. and I remember. But then, but, yes. then I, but then I remember seeing it as a kid on television when it aired, um, and then being obsessed, obviously, and taped it. But then that got lost, and then bu buying the CBS video from the you know as a kid as well, that was condensed. And I was like always angry, going, "What the hell happens to Bonnie Bedelia? Where did she go? Like, why is she just burnt up?" And then when they finally released it on the DVD, and it was the whole sprawling thing with the Mexican. Um, sorry guatemalian opening and ending i was like fuck thank god and it's all there so good it gave me chills re-watching it going this is stuff i haven't seen ever since i was a kid you know when it was on tv but um it's funny to see that when you sort of get used to the the cut that you're used to and then you see the actual proper cut and you're like thank god um and then when it happens and then when like things sort of evolve or devolve like you know the warriors for instance you're, you're used to watching that or the, the original proper cut then you get that stupid release with the comic stuff like what the hell and then you re oh, yeah. you know <laughs> and then you rewatch the original and you're like yes that's why it's a masterpiece don't fuck with it but it's, yeah it's really it's really interesting so alligator though the only thing that comes to my mind is knowing what's on that lion's gate so i'd love to know the extra bits that fleshed it out on tv well, I was just going to say the, the there is somebody did tape it. There is a version out there. I've had, I know a place where you can get it. I'm just having trouble getting the person that has it to re-upload. 
uh, or, or reseed or whatever, uh, where I can get access to it. But I, I've been diligently working toward that goal for the last six months. I keep hoping if, if, if that happens, you will definitely be the first person I let know. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, but but I, I have I have located it. Let's put it that way. I've, I've, I've done part of the legwork. I, I've located it. I'm just hoping that person will... Uh, We'll, we'll see my pleas and, uh, and, and do their do their duty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing, though, I did that I did think was interesting, and I want to make sure I have this information correct. Is that John? Was it? Is it true that John Sales was doing the script for? He was working on the scripts for Alligator and The Howling simultaneously. I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And as the the uh, the story goes, he would do it um, in between flights and stuff like that. So he was working. Yeah, simultaneously on the two scripts, absolutely. Um, but remember, though, also, Howling was also Terence H. Winkless as well on that. Um, so Terence H. Winkless would write, the, I think, the initial draft, um, and then John Sales came in and fleshed it out and changed a lot of stuff. Um, but basically, the Gary Bradner novel really doesn't exist within that script, really, besides, you know... Um, tiny bits here and there, um, but ultimately, yeah, um, the script would be a, t a combo of Terence and John Sowles, but mostly Terence, uh, mostly John. Uh, then the the alligator thing was also based on a story by um, what's his name, Frank? Uh, I forgot his name. Italian. Oh Jesus! It'll come to me. He he. So he. This, it basically, it's it based on a short story. So you, you know, as you know, as it was based on the um the mythology or the folklore about alligators in the in the sewer. Fra Frank Ray Pirelli was his name. So Frank Pay uh, Ray Ray Pirelli. He was a he was a playwright as well, and he did a lot of work as a comedian. Um, and he wrote for like a pe people like um uh, beautiful you know insult comic what's his name uh don, don rickles so he wrote for that people like that and then he came up with this story and that was where sort of the seed um sort of emerged and also uh he worked a lot with um, albert band um because he came up with um zoltan frank ray Pirelli came up with the the sort of essence of the story for zoltan hand of dracula um, and you mentioned earlier me doing a lot of commentary gigs. That was one of them. I did um, Zoltan Hand of Dracula with fellow historian and writer John Harrison here in Melbourne. And that was good fun to do, to work on, because that's a great, fun film. Um, but yeah, so there you go. So Frank um, Ray Pirelli's, you know, plants the seed and then John Sales takes off with it. And that's similar to Terence H. Winkless, who had great ideas and great setups for the Howling screenplay. Um, and then John Sales came along and sort of injected all that wonderful, you know, political sort of input and the social stuff and the, the scrutiny on the role of the media and, you know, um, the whole therapy fad thing and the new age philosophies and all that stuff, which is really cool. And with Alligate, it's all about, um, you know, taking charge of a situation that's going to consume a town or, or a whole bunch of people. And it's such a class conscious film. I just think that's, really really important when you discuss alligator i think that's something that a lot of horror does um during that period the class division the class divide and what um the class system actually represents in 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 the, uh, in the viewpoint of some of dealing with something that's quite disastrous and nasty and alligator does it really beautifully does it really smartly it's kind of like um 
even though they're very different films. But if you do you remember that, that there was a great wave of um, rural terror films, so like things like Wolf Lake and um, Straw Dogs and all those movies where you know sort of or Deliverance, where it's kind of like um, the sort of disgruntled uh, mountain people attacking people who are from civil this you know quote unquote civil world or um, bitter. Um, old army units, uh, unit men, uh, anti, you know, young people who are progressives. Um, there's a great Alan Alder film, you mentioned him earlier at the opening, um, called To Kill a Clown, which was actually directed by the same uh-huh. guy that did Jenny, the Marlo Thomas Alan Alder film. And that's the same thing. Alan Alder plays an old Viet vet with dogs, these guard dogs, and he resents the hippie couple, one of them played by Blythe Danner. Um, so there's that whole thing there with class divide and... Um, uh, you know, social sort of status um, divide. And Alligator is that as well, because you've got this kind of really rich bureaucracy that's sort of controlling, um, you know, these mutagens and the uh, basically damaging the environment. Then you've got Robin Riker as a working class woman who is trying to do the good and the better be- to, and work for the benefit of the environment. And then you have Robert Forster, another blue collar working class copper, um, who's in the middle of his career. You know, he's not old enough to retire, but he's not young. Um, and then also in between that, peppered around that film, you've got characters who kind of live in, in and out of different class divides, whether they're wealthy associates to the, the, the real villains of the piece or, you know, um, people trying to get ahead but being kind of sneaky and shitty about it, like Sidney Lassick's character. So it's a really, it's such a rich tapestry, I think, that film. Um, and class pops up in Cujo. So Lewis Teague does that again with Cujo. You know, the middle-class Cambers versus the working-class... Sorry, the middle-class Trentons versus the working-class Cambers um, and a middle-class woman's problem compared to the working-class woman's problem, etc. So it's really, really beautiful, beautiful stuff. Really smart, clever, um, interesting, interesting and introspective stuff that these films talk about. And horror does that. It sort of, you know, tackles this. And especially that during that period, it sort of brings it home. Um, you'll notice, you know, post-alligator, a lot of eco-horror movies would generally be about comfortable people, like, of unknown origin. This is about a yuppie who's basically terrorised by a rat. Um, you know, things like, um, uh, what else happens in the 80s? Uh, you know, um, in the shadow of the Kilimanjaro, um, that's, you know, oh, sorry, Savage Harvest with the lions. You know, that's kind of middle-class white people basically slammed into... Uh, Africa, you know, this whole prospect of being torn to shreds, you know, displacement is another thing. So I like all that sort of stuff. I think it's really cool to sort of watch and see the progression and how eco-horror especially just changes. Um, You know, it sort of starts off with um, sort of character-driven stuff like the birds, and then it moves into environmentalism actually being something jeopardised, therefore nature's going to turn, things like frogs, etc., and then you have the throwback to things like Them and the Beginning of the End and all those 50s films. And Alligator pops up kind of at, at the end of that spectrum um, as another throwback to those big monster movies because it becomes a huge gator. And also I love Killer Croc films. I mean, I don't know, what are some of your favourites? Because I like the Thai film Crocodile, which, you know, has um, Dick Randall produced that and he was the guy that did a lot of Mondo stuff. He did... um. The Wild Wild World of Jane Mansfield, and he also did, uh, he worked on um, uh, Wang Wang, the Wang Wang film, For Your Height Only, um, which is called the James Bond sp- spoof with the primordial dwarf from the Philippines, Wang Wang. Uh, but he, uh, Crocodile's really fun, that's like a really, um, you know, fun atomic 
um, explosion crocodile. Yeah. But what are some of your favorites? Sorry, I'm fucking ranting. Well, I no no, it's good. Uh, oh. It's all good. I I remember one called the Great Alligator, I believe. Yes. It's of questionable merits, but I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and it was kind of a it was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, I'm sure as an adult, I probably would have a different opinion of it now, but <laughs> I, I remember that one. And do you like, um, uh, you know, Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive? Oh, Eaten Alive! Yeah, that's that's a very underrated film. I think I would. Yeah, I was, uh, and I didn't even think to mention that one. Yeah, that's very underrated. Um, there's a lot of good stuff going on there. Uh, you know, granted, it isn't up to the level of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but then what could be? Yeah. After you come out. Uh, swinging out of the gate with something like that you you know you're you're not uh, there's no way you can, you can top that but it's it's a pretty solid follow-up to uh to what come before and i think unjustly uh dismissed at the time of its release now you were talking about these films uh, similar to uh deliverance and there was another title that i was gonna throw out there and see what your opinion was uh, rituals i love rituals i love it yeah, I do too. Yeah, that's. I think that's a very under. And Southern and Comfort. Oh yes, love Southern Comfort. That's a, that's that is a a, a masterpiece in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, I, I have exposed so many close friends over the years to that who had not seen it. I said you must. I basically grabbed them by the lapel and said you must see Southern <laughs> Comfort if you're a serious film fan. Yeah. So, yeah. And those are those are two. Two, two good ones, for sure. Well, uh, yeah, and uh, right quick, uh, before we uh, finish, before we wrap up here, I just was curious about uh, your opinions. I have to ask about Alligator 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, so I remember having... The, I, I had the DVD release of Alligator and Alligator 2 that came out together, um, and... Yes. I, I that for some reason I must have lent it to someone or it's just missing from my collection. I wanted to rewatch it um, recently, actually, before we were going to talk about this. But I remember, I mean, like D Wallace um, talked about it. I recall, like we've known each other for a while now, and she mentioned some stuff about it. Um, but and it was like there was a whole subplot. I remember for, about the guy, the lead guy, wanting to quit smoking. Um, and I remember that it was kind of more heavily based on toxic waste and all that sort of stuff. And there's all that stuff that's sort of shot on the lagoon rather than anywhere else, like, you know, uh, like a, a gorge or something. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it is what it is. <laughs> um, I remember, I remember the poster art being quite impressive, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, that's right. Dee Wallace said it's a missing John Sayles script. Um, remember because she had worked on the Howling with him as well, so you know she remembers loving the first film. She really loved the Lewis Teague film, and also of course worked with him as well, on Cujo. But um, this one, the the sequel, yeah, I think it was just sort of you know, <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts? I don't remember much about it to be honest. I remember having that DVD for not that long, and it, then it disappeared, and it was the double. It was a double pack with Alligator Two: The Mutation and. I just remember it had a lot more to do with the toxic waste aspect. I remember it like it kind of likening it to something like Gnaw, Food of the Gods Part 2, which has nothing to do with the wonderful, you know, Bird Eye Gordon <laughs> film, which I love. Um, you know, but, it, you know, it's that kind of thing where it's, you know, really playing up, like hyper playing up on the fact that, you know, mutagens and uh, toxic waste is bad. And we get that. Like. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't remember a whole lot about it either. Uh, I think I saw it when it came out on video, 
Oh, in the early 90s. Uh, it uh, came out pretty quickly after its theatrical run. and uh, I remember my expectations were pretty low for it uh, because the bar had been set so high with the original Alligator. and I knew it, it shared the same producer, I believe, Brendan Chase. I believe he was the only connecting thread there. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, other than that, I, I, I just remember having a very low... Um, expectation. I mean, and I pretty much uh, the film pretty much was what I was expecting. So, <laughs> and to say not a whole lot, yeah. uh, except for Dee Wallace, she's always great. Uh, she tries to elevate the material of anything that she's in. Well, listen, uh, this has been fantastic. I have so enjoyed talking about Alligator. Uh, are there any? I know you're such a busy guy, and if there are any projects that you're able to talk about, I know some things you're kind of have to keep a lid on them until they're announced. But yeah. Um, something you want to talk about? There's loads. So I've, I've, got, I've got quite a bit coming up, which is really good. I'm so grateful and thankful. And I'm uh, helping out other people getting jobs as well, which is always great. I think the great... I think, I don't know, a measure of success to me is not making money, lots of money. I mean, it's nice, it helps. But being able to have that position where you can help others, I think that's a really good thing. And it builds community and it makes you know, it grows and it's like, this is, you know, this is the best person for this job and let's get this person, you know, if that person has never done anything but they really want to and they're, you know, doing it, you know, in the closet, let's get them out there, getting them jo uh, opportunities, let them write for things or do commentaries or blah, blah. And I think that's really important to me. So I think that's one aspect that I really want to sort of champion and discuss there. But uh, uh, the fact that people should help one another, if they're in positions of power, uh, positions of um, where they can, I think that's really nice and, and healthy and it builds a community. But at the moment, I'm saddled with um, finishing a book. So I'm still working on um, the Very Special Episodes book, um, which is, you know, a big job. And I've got these amazing contributing writers as well. So I've got a whole bunch of excellent contributing writers. Um, some of them are very well seasoned and some of them aren't. And it's really cool. It's nice to see different voices. Um, and it's all about very special episodes of TV sitcoms. And it's 250 episodes are going to be discussed. So that's a big one. Um, and I'm writing the core of it. But um, all these other writers have contributed some wonderful stuff. They're all amazing. Um, and I'm very thankful. And then heaps of uh, commentaries coming up. The ones I can announce. Let me see if I can announce any of these. I don't think I can, <laughs> which is which, which sucks. But the ones that are the ones that are on their way out. You mentioned Jenny. Um, there's In Search of Dracula, which is the the documentary narrated by Christopher Lee. I did the commentary for that um, with John Harrison again. Um, I also did the commentary for oh the Ghost Breakers. Um, the Bob Hope film with Paulette Goddard, as well as The Cat and the Canary. So I did those two. Um, with Ratanya Alda, who is the wonderful actress from, you know, things like The Deer Hunter and Mummy Dearest and Amityville 2, The Possession, etc. She's also an amazing film historian. Like, she knows so much and she's such a, a wealth of knowledge and she's got all these amazing connective stories to people, you know, from the golden age. Um, you know, she knew she knew John Wayne and she met Marlena Dietrich and all this stuff. It's like, fuck, this is amazing. So I got her work. <laughs> I was like, you know what, let's join forces and let's do stuff. So, you know, if you told five-year-old Lee Gambon, who was plastered to his screen, obsessed with Amityville 2, especially the massacre sequence where Sonny Montelli shoots his family, <laughs> and you told him, like, then that you were going to get the, the lead actress in this movie work, it's like, okay, shut up. But, I, you know, it's and it's this beautiful collaboration, and she's a master at her craft. She's so good at um, analysis and production history. She's just a font of knowledge. Um, so we've worked on a couple together. Um 
she has done with me recently, and they're coming out very soon, uh, The Flame of New Orleans with Marlena Dietrich, as well as um, the wonderful Gary Cooper film uh, from the 30s, uh, fuck, The General Died at Dawn. That's the one. So uh, Yellow Peril film from the 30s. Beautiful stuff. So we worked together on those. Um, so they're coming out as well. Um, and there's some stuff coming up that people are going to really enjoy. And I also did the commentary for Godspell, um, which I recorded a while back and had to keep quiet about that for ages. And that's for Columbia Sony. And that's a big deal because it's like a film that's been in high demand on Blu-ray and finally it's going to have its gorgeous print, really lovely sound. And also I produced uh, a bunch of featurettes on that, a bunch of interviews um, with Stephen Schwartz. The yeah, Stephen Schwartz, the composer, Edgar Lansbury, the producer, um, who incidentally is Angela's younger brother, and also produced um, Squirm, the eco-horror film. So there you go. And um, three of the cast members, Katie, Robin and Jerry, as well as um, uh, Carol DeGear, who is a Stephen Schwartz uh, biographer and musical theatre and film historian contributes stuff on it as well. Plus, there's a really cool vintage featurette on the making of it with David Green, the director, talking about it. And just seeing New York at that time, far out, amazing. But anyway, so that's coming out as well, Godspell. And then I've got a whole bunch of stuff coming out, and there's a, there's some horror stuff coming, there's more musical stuff. Um, there's my first animated film coming up to do a commentary for, so I'm very excited about that and can't wait to share the news about that. But um, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff coming up. And then also I am uh, still running Cinemaniacs Film Group. So we're still working on staff doing our screenings. Uh, at the moment, we're kind of under um, you know, the great stress as everyone else is with this horrible thing going around. But we're all going to survive this, Adam. We're all going to be fine, I think. We're all going to keep supporting each other and you know, keep the arts alive and healthy and thriving because that's what we need. <laughs>